Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to uh, Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 12 of chapter 3. Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. Danny made me think about, uh, as he's praying and thanking the Lord for the invention of heat, um, the church I came from was built in 1830, and it was a clapboard building, you know, shotgun style, and it began really as just a single room. And in the beginning, in the early days, the, the, the ladies would sit on one side, and the men would sit on the other side. And evidently this carried on until the single young men became a little older and intermingling became important. But it was interesting because just to think about some of the things that our forefathers um, worshipped, did to, to go to worship. But they had a single wood stove, wood burning stove in the building and it had a pipe that ran uh, to the back, but so the ladies got the heat first, um, and that's so the men endured. Oftentimes, you'll see pictures of the reformers with a hat on their head, which they would wear, especially during preaching, because they didn't have heat. But they continued to worship the Lord faithfully, and so we do thank Him that He's made it a bit more comfortable. I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable. I hope this morning we're going to talk about repentance. But let's give our attention, first of all, to the reading of God's Word, which we do as an act of worship. Let's hear now His Word beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is He who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand, 
and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please pray with me. Our Lord and God, this is your word, not mine. We ask therefore that you would bless us in the hearing of its reading and also in the preaching of it. Lord, drive these truths into our hearts that we might be a people who walk faithfully with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Allow me to remind you that this part of Mark's, or Matthew's gospel is a preface. Um, so he's not really getting to the meat of the gospel. This is the introductory material. And that doesn't mean that you get to skip over it. Um, you don't get to clep out of this part of Matthew's gospel. It's extremely important because in the preface, which is going to continue into chapter 4, verse 17, in this part, what Matthew's doing is he is setting down some points. In some sense, the whole proposition is here. Matthew's telling you, I'm going to argue for something. And, and the something that he's going to argue for is the person of Jesus Christ and how the work of Christ, which begins in chapter 4, verse 18, bears out that he is this person. Matthew begins kind of simply. He says Jesus is a Davidic king. Very simply. Here are his letters of patents. Here is his Ancestry.com paperwork. He comes from David. He's a Davidic king. We learn that he didn't inherit the corruption of Adam. So he descends from David, but there's one very important distinction. He isn't corrupt like David was. He was worshipped by foreign kings. Kings of the East came and demonstrated His worth and His value that He is a King of kings. He was persecuted by a domestic king. Worshipped by foreigners. Persecuted by one who was at home. And he was protected from death as an infant at his most precarious spot in life when he was most vulnerable to death, his life was preserved. And the man with the most authority, the most power to put him to death could not. That's going to become very important, isn't it, when we get to the end and he does die. Now, Matthew is turning our attention. He's saying, okay, I have, I've put these things before you. He is a Davidic king. He descends from David, right? There's certain rights, some, certain entitlements that come along with that. Not only is he a Davidic king, but he is one who is foretold in the prophet Isaiah. And it's very important because the point that Matthew's making there when Jesus is the one that John announces, the one that John announces according to Isaiah 40, 
is not just a king. It's not just a redeemer. The one who comes after the forerunner is himself God. That's what Matthew is doing in this preface. He's saying to you, I'm laying out my proposition. I'm not just writing a biography of a man. I am, he is arguing for these points that the one who comes after John is a Davidic king who deserves your worship, who is himself God. You see, and so now as we go forward in Matthew's gospel, you're, there are some, certain things that Matthew has to do He has to prove it. And there are a couple of messages left, a couple of propositions. His kingdom. What about his kingdom? The king is coming. What about his kingdom? What does it look like? How is he going to conquer? Does he come with horses, chariots, cannons, swords? What if I want to be a part of his kingdom? How do I know if I'm in it? How do I know if Christ is my king? If I'm accepted by him, what is the nature of the kingdom of Christ? Some of that is fleshed out right here. Listen, in some sense, listening to what Matthew's putting forward And understanding that John has come forward to announce the coming of a kingdom. Hopefully you'll begin to see that John's message and his his garments, that he, he dresses like a prophet, his message is almost identical to the prophets who went before. You remember Isaiah and Jeremiah? Did they announce the coming of a kingdom? They did. And the message from those prophets we're going to see is identical to to John's in this way. Israel, a kingdom is coming. Israel, Judah, a kingdom is coming out of the north. Repent, repent, turn back to Jehovah. If you don't, the day of the Lord is coming. And if you don't turn to Him, repent of your idolatries, repent of your adultery, turn to Him and receive His mercy. If you don't do that, you will burn. Now John, he comes forward with the same message, but a different kingdom. A kingdom is coming upon you. Repent now and be relieved of the consequence of impending judgment. That is John's message. There's a message to those here who repent and to those who don't. To those who repent, those of you who repent and are repenting. John would say to you through Christ, rest in the comfort of the Lord. Your salvation is at hand. To those who resist and who won't repent, rest assured in this, that your doom is imminent. Those who have repented of their sins may rest in knowing that their salvation is at hand. 
But those who trust in any other thing must rest assured their doom is imminent. Notice, first of all, from the text that if you have repented, you can rest in knowing that your salvation is at hand. We'll pick up here in verse 5. And John draws our, or Matthew draws our attention to something that's happening in, in this whole region. So, so John is out in the wilderness, the place of barrenness, the place where redemption is to begin, according to all of the prophets. And, and his message is starting to, to sort of trickle out in and amongst the region so that what's happening? Jerusalem... And Judah and people from all over the region are coming out to John. They're flowing out to him. And in verse 6, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people are coming from all over. They're hearing this message. And what was the message again? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near at hand. They're hearing this message And God is bringing them out to John to be baptized. John is, as these folks are coming to him, he is applying the symbol of God's forgiveness and cleansing upon these folks. Remember, uh, as they're confessing their sins, we think about John's message, John the Apostle in 1 John. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse you of your sins. And to forgive you from all unrighteousness. Well, these people are coming out to John, having heard this preliminary message from him, and they're being baptized in the Jordan River. There's an important observation for us to make here, because we can can take this nowhere and say, well, John's baptism has nothing to do with us. Or we can take it too far and say, look, this is the form of Christian baptism. And so as we think about John's baptism, as these folks are confessing their sins, I want you to notice that there's a couple of ways that John's baptism is not like ours, and there are some ways that John's baptism is like ours. One, as people are coming out to John's baptism, notice that it's, as far as we can tell, only adult Converse. How can we tell that? Well, they're confessing their sins. They're doing something. And therefore, John, as they are confessing their sins, are, is baptizing them, as it were. But we also ought to notice a certain thing. There's a way in which it's, it's not normative for us, also because there were those who were baptized by John who had to be re-baptized. Several places in the book of Acts in which those who had only known John's baptism had to receive a Christian baptism into Christ. Another way that it isn't normative for us is that you have to remember as you read through John's gospel that the requirements of the ceremonial law have not gone away yet. So these folks who are being baptized in the Jordan still have to observe the requirements of the ceremonial law. They still have to offer sacrifices. They go to the temple, and etc. There has not yet been a transition to the new covenant. So we don't look to John's baptism and say, okay, here are all the things that we ought to be doing in a Christian baptism. 
But you also notice that there are certain things about John's baptism that are like our baptism. One, baptism was with water. Verse 11, I baptize you with water. Baptism, as given by the Lord, then is properly to be done with water. We don't do it with Coca-Cola or anything else. We do it with water. This is something that we observe in all of the sacraments. When we faithfully follow what the sacraments are, we do exactly what the Lord has given us. I had a professor in seminary who said, why, why do we drink wine instead of having peanut butter sandwiches and milk to observe the Lord's table? And many of us sitting in class would go through and we'd say, well, I, you know, wine properly um, symbolizes the blood of Christ. And we would give all these elaborate reasons. And then he would say, is that it? Yes, those are our reasons. He'd say, let me make it simple. Jesus commanded wine. In baptism, it's water. We use water simply because that's what the Lord has commanded. That's what John uses. And, and so we, we still use water in our baptism. That's appropriate. But also notice here that baptism is reflective of the promise of God. These people are coming out to John. They're confessing their sins to him, the very inmost aspect of repentance. And in response to that, they're being Baptized. Reflecting to them the promise of God. Here from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27, we, we find these words referring to this, the new covenant of the Lord in which He's going to put within them a new heart, a new spirit. He's going to pour out His Spirit upon them. And we read these words, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. But he says there in verse 25, going back up, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So we see that these two elements, these simple elements which are going to be expanded after Christ's ascension are there. Baptism is with water. And it is reflective of the promise of God, not the faith of the individual. That baptism reflects God's promise to cleanse and to renew. It is an act of God. I want you to notice this. That this symbol of cleansing was applied to those who confessed their sins. You understand then that the application of this symbol wasn't salvific in itself. That's important, isn't it? It wasn't the water that saved anyone. It was the endeavor in faith to follow after the Lord, to submit to this King who was coming and the rules of His kingdom, to acknowledge it. Look, John's baptism was what? Um, notice with me in verse 11 again. I baptize you with water for repentance. You might say unto repentance. Do you see what's happening there? 
So the baptism there does not represent the the culmination of anything. Baptism represents initiation. You see that? Baptism represents the initiation. That's why the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 would say, go therefore making disciples by baptizing them. That's the introduction To become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must be baptized. You must receive this symbol as the beginning, the initiation of your life with Him. The beginning of life with Christ, then we understand, is represented in baptism. It's not a singular event. It is something that continues on in my life. Therefore, John could say in his message, remember from last week, It's not repent, come on guys, this is what you have to do, let's get it over with and go on. Remember what John said, his command is in the present tense, be repenting. And then in verse 8 here he says to us what? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These are not culmination. This is not an opportunity for, they're not coming out to John saying, you know what, I want to put my stake in the ground and say it's done. But what they're saying is they're being initiated into the kingdom of the Lord. Representing that they will go on endeavoring to keep on repenting, acknowledging their sins before the Lord. When you were baptized, that was the beginning of your life with Christ. The beginning of it. And so we say in our confession that my work is to go on improving my baptism. I want to go on growing in my knowledge of the truth. Especially, listen, growing in my knowledge of myself. That's hard. That's hard. I don't want to go down into the ugly places. But you've got to. You've got to. Or you will not go on repenting. You will grow into a point where you become thorny and hard. You'll say, I've done it. You'll start comparing yourself to other people and say, I'm better than them. The hell hell is reserved for those folks, not me. But John says to you, go on repenting. This is your badge of citizenship. Now, another thing that you ought to notice about this as we think about this repentance and our hope. All of this is done through the grace of Christ. Do you see that? The fact that I must go on repenting signals something to me. That I will never ever reach a spot in my life where I can look in the mirror and say, you know what, you're good enough. It is signaling to you that every day you will look at yourself in the mirror and you will say to yourself, but for the grace of God. Do you know that even your repentance is imperfect? That even your repentance is not acceptable to the Lord? That even your repentance must be perfected by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? He paid for your imperfect repentance. Nebuchadnezzar, in the famous recounting in the prophet Daniel, was cursed by the Lord. And he was sent out into the wilderness. 
We read about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. A very interesting parallel to our circumstance. And in judging Nebuchadnezzar there temporally, immediately we read the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long, as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. One of the things that Daniel does so uniquely is he makes a vivid picture of the unregenerate man. You've descended and you become like a beast, an irrational beast, obeying only your lusts. This is you in the unregenerate state. You are a a, um, slave to the appetite of your flesh. Whatever my flesh craves, that's what I'm going to give it. You're beastly. We notice what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Do you see what's happening there is and Nebuchadnezzar's repentance and his relentance, relenting his rebellion against the Lord. Finally, reason returned. We can say the same thing about repenting. A man who repents is a man to whom the Holy Spirit has given reason. You're not reasoning against God. You're only really reasoning when you acknowledge Him. Remember, therefore, that if you have repented and are repenting, rest in knowing that your salvation is at hand. Christ will preserve you. Secondly, if you trust in any other thing, rest assured your doom is imminent. Matthew turns our attention, going back to Matthew 3, he turns our attention to two groups who approached John. And it's interesting how things work in the narrative. The first time that Jesus cast out a demon was in the synagogue. And here the first people who initiate conflict with John are religious leaders. The first group is the Pharisees. This was, they are a sect that developed in the intertestamental period. In, in, in other words, when the prophets were silent, these religious groups grew up. They considered themselves to be purists. They were the pure followers of the law. And this was reflected in their behavior. They, not only would they not associate with anyone who was not a pure Jew, but they wouldn't associate with even the Jews who didn't follow the law in their view entirely. Now, here's one of the things that you need to put in the back of your mind right now. The Pharisees are not representatives of the Mosaic law. Many Christians make that error. They are separatists. They are the ones who have come out. They consider themselves to be the purists. 
They adopted the, opposed the adoption of any secular thinking. If it's Greek, we don't want to have anything to do with it. We are Jews. And we are the highest Jews. So they would not eat or identify even with other Jews. They considered themselves above and aloof. One commentator says they tried hard not to become contaminated or defiled by associating with anyone or anything that would render them ceremonially unclean. That is, except what? Their own impure hearts. The second group is the Sadducees. And very simply, these, the Sadducees were the ones who will become known as those who deny the resurrection. This life is all there is. If you adopt that mentality, you are a Sadducee. They, each group reflects those who deeply desire to find sufficiency within themselves. They cannot bring themselves to acknowledge sin. You know what? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. People like me. But they are men, both who are defiled and who are defiling, Jesus will say in Matthew 16, 6. Notice in verse 9, do not presume to be saying amongst yourselves, John there had called them children of serpents. Children of serpents. Jesus later will call them sons of the devil. And in response, we get this picture where they kind of maybe group amongst themselves and they say, why would he call us children of servants? Don't we know, doesn't he know that we have Abraham as our father? We have Abraham as our father. We've come so far. We progressed. We are the purest, the perfect. They've come merely, either to merely observe the baptism or to take part in it just so that they can identify with the people and continue to have some degree of celebrity to themselves. But John is very clear that those who are like them, that those who speak good things to themselves, whose work is, whose spiritual work is to remind themselves how good they are. Are in a very dangerous position. Let's notice lastly here. John is introducing Christ. And thirdly, we see then that Jesus, in the end, will sort the converted from the unconverted in the last days. We know that, do you see what's happening? John has come to tell us that Jesus is coming. He's the one who's mightier than I. He's God himself. I can't even carry his sandals, he says. Do you see how John's perspective changes from what is about to happen immediately to what is it going to happen in the future, in the indeterminate future? John, look what he says. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat 
into the ESV says the barn. It is his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so as we think about this, I am pressing upon you. John, Matthew is pressing upon you. You must do this and you must do it now. You see, Matthew's writing after the ascension of Christ. And he's looking at all of those who would come behind and read his gospel. And he's saying, John is pointing to the imminent coming of Christ in his baptism, in his ministry on earth. But you need to identify in John's words that he's not talking just about the first coming, but he's talking about the second coming. Christ is coming. Do you see the imminence? Look at it. Where is the winnowing fort? It's not sitting next to the throne. He's not reaching down to take it up. Where is it? It's in His hand. There is a period of time when Christ will baptize you in the Spirit and in fire and He will come in judgment. We know that Jesus Himself will lead the judgment. Do you know that? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 reminds us that Christ will come with a shout, with a command to His angels. It's time to gather. Christ will command the commencement of judgment. We also learn from John this judgment is imminent. It is not something that we should sit back and say, oh, I know it's coming one day and it'll be old tribulation time and don't they have to rebuild this temple and all these things. John says, no. The next thing that's going to happen is Christ will appear. Do you see that? The next thing. Today is the day. Christ's return marks finality. Not the beginning of anything. The end. The separation of the wheat and chaff are one work of Christ. I'll read to you from John 5, 28-29. Jesus is speaking here and He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, all, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. One event and John is telling us, Matthew is telling us, he's telling you, he's looking at you, and he is saying, if you think that this is something you can handle tomorrow, do not deceive yourself. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right now, in this moment, everything has to be stripped away. You must recognize the impending doom that awaits you if you will not be turning from your wickedness. If you will not be confessing your sins to the Lord and be receiving His forgiveness. 
Often, the mythical character of death is depicted with what in his hand? A sickle. He's the one who comes with the sickle. But you and I know that it is Christ who now has the sickle in his hand and is in a moment ready to start the harvest. Will you be gathered into his storehouse having trusted him, having repented? Or will you be thrown with the chaff into the unquenchable fire? Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words, but they are gracious words. You owe us no warning. You owe us only wrath and curse, fire, condemnation, destruction, expulsion. It's what we deserve. But we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and burial has taken upon himself the fire that all those who have repented and go on trusting him are preserved from the wrath that is to come. We praise you for that great, great, great promise. Amen.